I'd say, what did he do, Ma? She'd say nothing. And then she'd start to sing, I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. And the water would run like mad. And you'd hear the coffee drums, the coffee grounds bobbing up and down there in the sink strainer. They don't have sink strainers anymore, by the way. Have you noticed that? No, not real sink strainers. Those big, those big white porcelain types with the holes in them. With the black rim around the edges, triangular shape, fit in the edge of the sink, was always loaded with, with potato peelings and slivers of Fells naphtha soap, that brown soap, with with ground right into the soap, the coffee grounds, and the grainy things, and all the rest of it, threads and little bits of hair and wool and stuff. I'm forever blowing bubbles. She'd look out there at old Bruner, and Bruner was always fooling around on the back porch. He always was looking down in the hedges. He would grow hedges all the time around his porch, and he figured that tobacco juice was good for him. I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. They fly. <laughs> the only point that I'm making here is that these are, these are the things truly in our lives. These little things are the things that we get the satisfactions from. Like I, for some reason or other, get great satisfaction in stopping in the in the Horn and Hardart, just stopping and having a cup of coffee. And just sitting over there by the edge and reading a magazine or something, and I'm drinking this coffee, which is good coffee, and I'm just sitting there looking out at the crowd. And, and I enjoy this. Why do I enjoy I enjoy this more than going to some jazzy place in the afternoon with some guy for French pastry and demitas. I just sit there, and I get up and go. And, and, and it's sad because we're such godlike creatures. Why do we settle for this? I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. This is the first time I've been on it this time ever in all my years in radio. Yeah, this is the first day that we're on from 12.15 until 2. And it's peculiar. Suddenly you have to, I have to at least, reorient my entire thinking. For, for the last two years almost, I've been on from 10.15 until noon, every Saturday morning. And now, it, it, there is a tremendous difference, you know, really a tremendous philosophical and physical difference between those two hours, 10.15 and, and 12.15. You know, it really, it's a different kind of people and everything you see out there. All the people with the flowered dresses, 12.15. You know the kind of people? The afternoon people are out all the all the matinee people, the the Westchester Darien people—it's a completely different crowd. And I have to totally—the the sun looks different, the air is different. Well, Bruner gets pleasure from it, so don't say anything about it, really. After all, and you know what was so beautiful about it? What was implied in what she said? We all have such a short time. So don't don't get angry because somebody gets pleasure from it. I mean he's you know I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. Like this kid writes to me, he says, Shepherd, so you're looking for candidates. This is a kid, remember now. Listen, a sixteen year old kid. So you're looking for candidates for the brass figligy with oak leaf cluster. Well maybe you don't get invited to as many events as Pegine. But I know you will appreciate the significance for our time of the following message which stares out at the palpitating throng at the Hayden Planetarium. 
which is, of course, one of the meccas of Norman Rockwell-type kids of my generation. It reads, and here is a sign that you can see at the Hayden Planetarium, and this kid spotted it. Remember, this 16-year-old kid. A big sign, a great big sign, and the top line says, Solar System and Restrooms, that way. <laughs> That's a fantastic sign. wonderful. It took a kid to see that. Solar system and restroom. A big arrow points that way. This is the One World Department. Also, the ridiculous and the sublime. Solar system and restrooms. Do you understand the juxtaposition? Think about it. For crying out loud, think about that. thinking about that, may I insert an insidious message? If you girls listening are counting calories, or maybe just watching them slip by, then we've got fantastic news for you, and the news is Vegemato. Vegemato Fresh Vegetable Juice Cocktail. Solar system, that way. This is a blend of tomato and vegetable juices. It comes in a can, and it's different from anything you've ever tasted, baby. Just imagine a juice that has a livelier flavor. More zing than tomato juice. Why, you can't imagine a thing like that. More zing than tomato juice. Just imagine. It's richer and heartier than any vegetable juice ever been concocted before. Well, that's Vegemato. It's nourishing, low in calories, and it's got sock. <laughs> it's the perfect way to ward off that mid-morning droop. What do you mean, mid-morning droop? Vegemato. Look for the name Vegemato. Take a few cans home. Serve it to your family. And I'm sure that you'll <laughs> thank me for recommending it to you. <laughs> Solar system that way. You see in the middle of in the middle of Paradise Lost, throwing in a plug for the Ford company. <laughs> And this kid goes on to say, he says, uh, well, you know what I... <laughs> the kid goes on to say, he says, I've been a devotee ever since that day you heckled the mob at Queens College a couple of years ago. Oh, that was a wild afternoon. I'd like to go out there again. I, I found that of all the colleges that I've been, the most fist-fighting crowd of all is at Queens. I mean, they slug it out. He says, every Saturday morning, my father asked me what you're talking about. Well, of course, you see, some fathers are a different breed completely different crew. And, you know, there is something that happens to a person after a certain point in life has been passed. We will not discuss it. That follows next semester. Next semester. Just put a note down in the notebook. That'll come up. He says, and I, 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 I'm hard-pressed to tell him, even though I use trite phrases like, quote, describer of the passing scene, quote, the poor man's John Wingate, the fact is, however, he listens anyway and intermittently scowls at the world of Harold Monolith. Keep up the fight against pre-taped lives. The 16-year-old kid. You want to hear another kid? Listen to this kid out there fighting it out. A few weeks ago, you read on the air a letter describing this teenage chick's room 
with the picture of Jesus right there in with Elvis, Ricky, and whoever else happened to be popular at the time. The point of it all being that man has finally elevated himself to the level of his gods. Well, do you remember the scene? A kid wrote me a letter about his little cousin who was 14 years old. He went into her room one day to get something, and he walks in there, and he says on her wall were all these pictures of the current teenage heroes. There's Ricky, there's Dick Clark, there's Kooky, there's Fabian, and right down there in the corner is a picture of our Savior. Looking exactly the same as they're all looking, with the same look over the, the whole business, it was a picture sent to her by some lumber company on a calendar, and she had put it on with Ricky and the whole crowd. And the kid says he turned around and he left the room and he's walking downstairs and he's thinking about that man has finally done it, has finally elevated himself to the status of gods. Really? It's a wild picture. Well, the kid goes on to say, this, this current kid, who is 19, by the way, he says, he's done it again, man has, from a Time Magazine article about audio-visual education, and we quote, Marshall McLuhan, English professor at St. Michael's College, the University of Toronto, in a splendid flight of pedagogical rhetoric, added, and we quote, the dialogue between man and machine will replace the guided tours of data provided by the book. You catch the significance of that? The dialogue between man and machine. Dialogue means a two-way conversation. The dialogue between man and machine will replace the guided tours of data provided by the book. For in the dialogue, there is no maintaining a point of view, but only the common participation in creating perpetually new insight and understanding in a total field of unified awareness. This is not gobbledygook, what he's saying. And the kid goes on to say, Oh, yes, man, through discussions with his machines, is going to reach mutual understanding with them. Personally, I feel that nothing will come of this. The machine, having been created by man, will inherit all of man's sicknesses, and thus no understanding of any kind will ever be reached. So now that God, man, and machine are all part of the same cosmic caste, C-A-S-T-E, man has nothing to worship except himself, which I suspect he has been doing all along anyhow. Of course, this is part of the cult of psychiatry today. Go to worship at the image of the ego, the id, and the superego. The all-enveloping circlement of self. This thought occurred to me a few days ago. <laughs> yes. So, um, I mean, you know, don't stand still. I want to show you the... the the parallel now between these two letters, and here's a letter from a male, man-type, adult-type type human being who says almost the same thing. He says he works on a newspaper. He says, this morning I was working in the old bullpen here at the paper, taking some copy by phone from the Watanabe Drive-In Theater when I stumbled upon the story of my life. Mr. Watanabe, who owns the drive-in, said, quote, By the way, Charlie, put the second feature in lower case. It runs at 9.30 only. So do you realize that most of our lives are second features? That run as the second half of a double bill? We go through life in lower case, with a few caps sprinkled through the copy here and there. The worst part of this revelation is that we're shown at 9.30 only. Frank and Gina, up there in the first feature, 
get a second chance, but relatively few of us ever reach the big time. If anybody comes in late, they never knew how we began and never understand our plot. Yes. <coughs> Give me the last chorus there, please, again. Will you please, Tony? You have to... We have to get the clinger. <coughs> he gets pleasure out of it. He gets pleasure out of it. He gets pleasure out of it. Please. And we hear such a short time. <laughs> I mean, really, you know? I mean, you, you look up you look up at that spinning sun, and you look over there at the Milky Way. How long has it been since you've seen the Milky Way? No, seriously. Have, have, you, uh, have you seen the Milky Way recently? Is it still out there? It was there when I was a kid, I know. I figure it must be. They talk about it on Long John Show a lot. No, no. I mean, it can't. Is it the same as it used to be? No. I, one of one of the things that uh, I'm going to kind of have to admit here now. There are certain things you don't ever want to really admit. And you is the Milky Way still there? Is the Big Dipper still there? Well, when I was a kid, I can remember very distinctly a very clear image of a thing that was, in a sense, one of the most uh, humiliating of all my troubles that I had. When, of course, as, as Sean O'Casey said, occasionally if you take backward glances at the events that made you, you will find in, in many instances they are not the things that the analysts talk about. You know, I've had a little experience in these, this field. I've, I've, I've studied it from time to time. And I, and I often feel... That the, that the real things that change of our lives are not often the things that Freud talked about. Here, for example, is, is, a, is a scene now. I'm this Boy Scout. I'm in Scout Troop 41. I'm in the Moose Patrol. I am assistant patrol leader. I am a second-class scout. Yes, I'm second-class scout retired, by the way. I retired with that life rank. Isn't <laughs> sad in a way? Second-class scout, even at that age. You're given this this terminology. <laughs> you can't picture... I mean, you can't picture Gregory Peck ever being a second-class scout, can you? I mean, second-class. And so, so I'm the second-class scout, and we are out on a field trip, on a hike. And we had this guy named Mr. Tompkins, who was our Boy Scout leader. And Mr. Tompkins had thick glasses, horn-rimmed glasses, and he was kind of balding on the top. And he was also, at the same time, a barber. And so every couple of weeks, he would put on his scout suit. We would put on our packs and so on. And one of the big problems, by the way, I had was this was during the Depression. And we would get open road for boys. And all these kids in the open road for boys magazines had these beautiful scout uniforms. 
and all I had was a pair of high-water pants. You know what is it, a high-water pants? Did they, did they ever call that, that those pants? No, that's, that's strictly a Midwesternism, I guess. Well, I'll, I'll leave it go with that. I'll let, you, let your imagination work on that one. I had a pair of high-water pants, and my uncle had given me a pair of World War I leggings, which I put around my legs, and they laced up the sides, and I had a pair of shoes, brown, dyed brown, which I wore as my Boy Scout uniform, and a neckerchief, which was the only piece of equipment I had, a big thing that hung around your neck. And so we would go out on these field trips, and Mr. Tompkins would say, about 10 o'clock at night, when we were sitting around the campfire, he would say, we are now going out on a constellation tour. And we would go out into the woods, and we would look up at the sky, and we were supposed to identify constellations. And he would say, now, uh, which one of you can identify the big bear? Now, point out the big bear to me. And I'd look, and I never once saw a constellation. I just saw stars up there, all those stars, and I never could see the constellation. And so I, I would, I would add lib, of course. He would say, and now, Gene, would you please point out the, the three little sisters to us? And I'd say, ah, oh, over there. Of course, I'm pointing at the sky. I'd say, up there. <laughs> and somehow I was always able to get by with it. But I wonder whether anybody ever has seen the constellations or whether they just figure everybody else does. And so they ad-lib it. It's like the whole world ad-libs the, the erroneous philosophy that they enjoy picnics. You know? The Pleiades. Oh, but that's just ridiculous. I mean, the solar system and the restrooms are that way. There's the sign. It's no problem. You can find it. Just go on over there now. Quit, quit shoving. Quit pushing. Always pushing. Always shoving. It's like, it's like this picture that I saw in Life magazine. I, I couldn't help but, but, but recognize that but, but the, the, these things just keep popping up. You, you can't stop it. There was a picture in Life magazine a couple of weeks ago. In fact, it was March 7th was the issue that showed a group of salesmen had gathered at a dinner and they were honoring the head man of the, of the, of the company, of the department. And somehow somebody made a mask, one of these printed masks up of his face, and the whole crowd of them, about 400 of them it looked like in the picture, had their picture taken wearing the face of their boss. Awful thought! And there wasn't a single dissenter in the crowd. I looked at that, and uh, first, of course, I, I just figured I was looking at a picture of the typical group of 20th century men. And then on second thought, I realized that I was. It's like this little uh, this little ad. Do you ever look at one ads? Sometimes when you look at one ad, you can see the real tragedy of the human race. There's this little one ad in The Examiner. The San Francisco Examiner. Get that a San Francisco paper that was mailed to me from San Francisco by a guy who picked this up, and he says, you can't miss it, Shepard. you got to look at this. Listen to this ad. And it's very serious. Under positions wanted, comma, women. Lady wants to entertain you and cheer you up, playing piano and singing in four languages. Also teaches English to immigrants, improve your French, Dutch, German, and dancing lessons, singing and piano lessons. If no answer, call again lady wants to entertain you. Wouldn't it be wonderful to hire this girl to sit in the corner and sing to you and play her lute? It, it's like the old days, like, 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 
like the minstrels. Lady wants to entertain me. Uh, how about in the halls of Tara? This is WOR Radio, your station for news. You are tuned to 710 on your radio dial. Use as a viper. A viper. Oh, use as a viper. Use as a viper. No, I, I don't have any drama in my, in my delivery. Use as a viper. Use as a viper. <laughs> Well, of course, this all comes back again. It comes back as clearly and as brilliantly as if it were inscribed in my memory, etched in the in the most indelible of inks. Speaking of indelible inks, do they still make indelible pencils? When I was this kid, there was a rumor that used to travel around among kid, you know, kid folklore. I, I noticed that they've come out with a book about kid folklore, the things that kids believe and how it travels from one generation of kids to the next. And one of the things that we used to believe when I was this kid was that if you got indelible pencil on your pen, on your tongue, you know, if you licked it, it was a deadly poison and would undoubtedly result in death eventually. <laughs> and I, I don't know if I ever really knew a kid who died of indelible, po indelible pencil poisoning. But... Uh, there was always this rumor that, that just absolutely persisted that if you got indelible pencil on your tongue, it, it was the jig was up. It was all there was to it. And I used to look at indelible pencils. I don't know whether they still make them or not, but they were purple when you'd lick them. And I used to look at an indelible pencil, and it had a kind of menacing fascination the way a snake has. And there used to be bottles in our medicine cabinet that had skulls and crossbones on them. You know, like iodine, things like that. You look in there and you'd see that skull bone and look out at you. And somehow, death to a kid was always just right around the corner. I mean, just, just the slightest misstep. It was the, uh, it was the old, well, the old mystical belief that there was such a thing as a live wire laying around on the ground. Wires were just called live wires. Any kind of a wire, you'd get to see a wire and you'd suspect that it was a live wire. Wires were alive with a life of their own. And, of course, we had another one, too, which should be reported at this time. And it was that inside of every golf ball, there was a liquid, a kind of liquid that was terribly explosive and poisonous, too. And if you ever started to unpeel a golf ball, you know, unwind all that, that rubber band stuff, that it was a terribly dangerous thing to do, and if you ever threw it in a fire, it was all up. It would explode with a tremendous report. And there was a, it was an acid, they said, that was in these things. And there was another thing, too, that we were afraid of, and that was this, that if you threw old milk cans, you know the kind of cans that they have for evaporated milk? That if you threw an old milk can into a fire, it would explode. And if it exploded, well, of course, the whole neighborhood would go up. <laughs> and that is all very closely connected with the quicksand problem. I will award the brass figliggy with oak leaf palm to anyone who can tell me who used to say, use is a viper. Use is a viper. To whom was this person referring? And under what circumstances did this occur? It was the punchline. Do you remember, Tony? 
Use is a viper. And what was the name of the comic strip that it appeared in? Why do I recall these things? I mean, what am I trying to do? What kind of hash am I trying to make of myself? I'm coming through Times Square the other day, and I'm there, and I see they're they're taking down that big Coca-Cola bottle or Pepsi-Cola. It's a big Pepsi-Cola bottle that they're taking down. You know those two big bottles that they had overlooking Times Square, and they're lowering them to the ground. Let me tell you, ever since the Great Pyramid at Giza was constructed, there have been few such awesome sights as the sight of a crane lowering about a 45-foot-high Pepsi-Cola bottle to the ground on Times Square. It was fantastic. I I missed three appointments. I just stood there and watched this thing. Because for a long time, (laughs) just just like most people, I, I kept... I was impressed by these things. They kept standing up there. And I could not help but remember there were things that they used to have in drugstore windows when I was a kid. I don't know why the coupling here, why the connection. But they used to have things in drugstore windows that were big globes that had colored liquid of some kind in them, red liquid or green liquid. And it always looked as though this liquid was some kind of very sweet or very strange liqueur or some sort of medicine that could be drunk or tasted. And and somehow I coupled it with these big bottles because at the same time there were also big mock-up bottles in many drugstore windows that were phony bottles, like a phony Coke bottle or a big phony bottle of some kind of patent medicine. You know, this, these couplings, and they were lowering this gigantic thing down, and all I could say was the solar system is that way. And the restrooms, too, of course. Down there, turn left there, you'll see the sign. And, and I, I saw that man, in his, in his pursuit of these things, man was assuming a, a, a godlike a godlike aspect that was second to no God in the universe. And while we're speaking of aspects, we would like to point out we have with us this morning Ying and Yang, which is one of the really fine restaurants in the metropolitan area. As a matter of fact, oh, well, we, it's one of the very few commercials. You know, the, the thing that I would like to point out about commercials is that generally speaking, uh, most people kind of feel as though they are rather an intrusion upon their lives. But I would like to say this about a restaurant spot, that I have found that in and out and throughout New York, there are, you know, for a, for a city this size, there are remarkably few really good restaurants. I'm always impressed by the, by, the, by the lack of really good restaurants. That many times I have been right here in midtown Manhattan on a Sunday afternoon looking for a place to eat, and there just hasn't been an interesting good restaurant to go to. Oh, there are, there are a lot of workaday restaurants, you know, the kind of places where you just go and get something to eat. But, I mean, a really special restaurant. There aren't many of them. For a city this size, it's, it's kind of appalling. As a matter of fact, I know it, half a dozen cities in the United States that have better restaurants of this type, you know, the, the unusual, interesting restaurant than New York has. I, I, I can't explain it or why this is true, but it just seems to me that it is. And when I found out about yin and yang, it was a good thing to know about. And I would like to point out to you, if you haven't tried this restaurant, it is one of truly good restaurants in the Manhattan area, and is on 3rd Street, 
in the village. It's 82 West, and it's very easy to find. You know, many people, when you mention the village to them, they immediately, oh, the village, oh, I can't find the village. It's, <laughs> it's just as easy to find things in the village as any place else. This is one of the New York bits of folklore I immediately found out upon being involved in this section of town with just so much folklore. But you can get a cab any place and just tell them you want to go to 3rd Street in the village, 82 West 3rd Street. And it's right near the NYU campus. It's, it's very simple to find. And you will find that the Yin and Yang restaurant is a small restaurant. It's a very special restaurant. And it's truly an aficionado's restaurant. As a matter of fact, Gourmet Magazine here a few months ago uh, singled Yin and Yang out as one of the absolute finest Chinese restaurants in the entire, in the entire United States. This is, a, this is quite an honor. It is a superb restaurant, and you'll find also that it is extremely reasonable for the quality of restaurant that it is. The, the service is fine, and it's an exceptionally good restaurant. By the way, another interesting little thing. I was talking to Bill Chan, who uh, runs Ying and Yang, and incidentally, if you're interested in what does Ying and Yang mean, it is an old uh, Eastern philosophy of the opposites. Uh, in a sense, it is kind of roughly connected with uh, Newton's law of physics that says for every action there is a reaction. Uh, this is a, an entire, entirely philosophical, a whole philosophical structure is based on that. That is the structure of the opposites, that for every good there is an evil, that for every, uh, and it is necessary for the good to exist, you see. We could go into this yin and yang, that, that sour does not exist without sweet, that Good weather does not exist without bad. Uh, that men do not exist without women, nor vice versa. And this is the uh, the philosophy of the opposites. And in connection with food, of course, the Chinese uh, make of their philosophies generally a whole thing. In other words, all their life, all uh, this is the true Chinese philosophers, that their whole life is based on that. In other words, every aspect of their life. And so in the foods that they can they, they prepare, yin and yang plays a part. And that is the sweet and pungent philosophy. For every sweet, there must be a pungent. For every bland, there must be a sharp. Uh, for every sour, there must be a sweet, and so on down the line. And this is, this is the, uh, the kind of food. It's, it's magnificent food. And they specialize in both northern Chinese and southern Chinese cooking, which are two different types of food. This is Ying and Yang at 82 West 32. Another little interesting thing. I was talking to Chan down there the other day, and uh, he told me just, uh, he didn't even want this to be mentioned, but I'm going to mention it anyway, that Ying and Yang contributes 15% of their Monday gross, and Monday is one of their big days, by the way, down there. Uh, they contribute 15% of their gross to a Chinese orphanage which was set up in Makoa, which is a Portuguese port, uh, set up for Chinese girls who were uh, running away from and who were uh, kind of uh, emigrants from the Chinese communist state. Uh, they, they contribute 15% of their month. For one solid year, they're doing this, uh, for this orphanage, for the youngsters who have been uh, the victims of Chinese communism. Very interesting little side light. But uh, this is Ying and Yang at 82 West 3rd Street, and I think you'll find it an exceptional restaurant. And for those of you who are interested, there is a bar. 
Uh, so you can you can do the works there, you know. You know, speaking of uh, <clears throat> funny thing about how we and food, I I've often thought about this that since almost time immemorial, the taking in of food has been a ceremonial occasion for human beings. Don't, don't you seriously? Don't you look forward to your next meal? In a sense, you you kind of look forward to it. And, and the taking of a meal has become, in the United States, of the chief forms of going out, one of the chief forms of social intercourse. It has become a very important thing. And yet, in some of the Far Eastern countries, you know, the taking of a meal is a very, very private thing. I mean, that you would never think of inviting people to watch you or to have anything to do with it. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very private thing. If you know anything about the eating habits of the Tibetans, for example, you, you'll realize this is true. They eat with their face to the wall, uh, very, very privately. But here in the United States, it's a big operation. I've gone, I've gone pretty much across the world, and I find that in many areas, uh, going out for a meal is not the big thing that it is here, and in fact is very rarely done, and is looked upon as a sad thing when you have to do it. And so, stick with it. You're going to get that kite up yet. We'll be back in exactly 60 seconds. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Yeah, well, I guess it, it comes from listening to too much Jack Armstrong when I was a kid. Or maybe it's because I, I spent too much time listening to somebody named Jimmy Allen. Or, or was it... Or was it... Uh, what was the name of the Green Hornet's... The Green Hornet's faithful servant? And what was the name of his automobile? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. You see, the trouble is, I remember both of these things. I remember both of them. And once in a while, when things begin to get a little tough, when things begin to gather around and the storms begin to lash and the great crashes of lightning thunder over my head, I repeat to myself, Humphrey Dumpty sat on a wall. Humphrey Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humphrey together again. I wonder what nationality Dumpty is. It sounds, uh... But after all, he was an egg. I mean, and, and well, he it sounds scotch to me. Humphrey Dumpty sat on a wall. Humphrey Dumpty had a great fall. And I can hear the sound of that green hornet's car. You remember the sound that it made? What was the name of that car? What was the name? You've got to find that name. Red sails in the sunset. Da 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 dee. La da 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 da. Of these oddments, these sundries, and these fragments, these notions are our lives made. It's as though each one of us is a vast Woolworth containing all sorts of cut-rate merchandise of one kind or another. It's like when I was a Christian. You find out these things very early in life. You do. Now, don't, don't sit out there and say this guy's talking gibberish. I am not. Your life is made up of those bits and pieces, those little, those little patchwork quilts, those, those little ends of string. When I was a kid, we had this dime store in our town. And it had traditional dime store woodwork. You know the kind of woodwork that dime stores have? That deep, 
maroon, sort of mahogany-colored, varnished woodwork that all dime stores think about it. You mean you don't even remember the color of the woodwork in the dime stores? You don't remember the dime store smell? There is a dime store smell that is composed of cheap perfume, Band-Aids, peanuts being peanutted, hot dogs being hot-dogged, a lot of people, the oil that they rub on floors, goldfish, canaries, the whole business. The other day, you know, I'm standing... I'm standing in the in the Woolworths right down here on 7th Avenue. And they've got a, a, a little collection of canaries there. And these canaries have a sign under them that says, Guaranteed to Sing. You ever have a feeling that you've got a sign under you that says the same thing? <laughs> you don't remember the, the color of the woodwork. Well, I'll tell you, it was mahogany. And it was deeply varnished. And in this dime store, they had in the toy department a thing called the Special Prize Grab Bag. And it had a great big sign over it, the Special Prize Grab Bag. Twenty-five cents, any prize is yours. Pick any package for a quarter, any package at all. And this was right in the middle of the toy department. The toy department had all these wonderful things. It had big little books, you know, Little Orphan Annie and Daddy Warbucks books, Mickey Mouse books. It had things like, like like guns that went into holsters. It had Buck Rogers zap guns. How many of you remember a Buck Rogers zap gun? It had Buck Rogers zap guns. And it had, you know, all the stuff that toy departments have, which were wonderful at that time. But the most important thing that this toy department had was the grab bag. And, of course, I'm this kid, and Bruner and I keep going down there on Saturdays looking at this grab bag until one day we both have a quarter to spend. And we plunk it down on the grab bag. We give our quarter. This is, you know, it's, it's terrible how you get euchred into life. It's awful how the traps are laying there. And we create them ourselves. We want them to be. You know, if you won every day on a horse race, you would have no interest in horse races. Not at all. And if you were told that you were going to live forever, absolutely without question you were going to live forever, something would go out of your life. You like to gamble on the chance that you will live forever. Everybody secretly, you know, has a, has a suspicion that he is going to live forever. That, that the last minute this guy in a white coat is going to rush in, they have just discovered the serum. And he's going to make it, you know, forever and ever. So I'm down there with Bruner, and here is this grab bag. We both plunk down our quarters, and we go over and we look in. And of course, here are the packages. They're all different sizes. There's little ones, and there's big ones, and there's flat ones, and there's round ones, and square ones. You see, this is all part of the trick. This is all part of the euchre game, the great shell game that most of us are involved in in life. That these things come in indefinable shapes, and almost all of them look good. Almost everything that traps us in the end looks really good. And so we're looking at all these big shapes... And finally, this is, a, this is a true incident, by the way. I finally picked a great big, long, flat one. Because somehow it looked very efficient. You know, it didn't look cheap, this package. And they were all wrapped. And I gave her my quarter, and I could hardly wait to get out. I didn't want to open it in front of her. And I get out of the store, and I rip open the package. And it turns out, oh, gee, when I think of it. It turns out to be a book of Shirley Temple cutout dolls with dresses. <laughs> Oh, boy. And I had a package of Shirley Temple dolls. <laughs> and I couldn't stand Shirley Temple in person. 
And here I got a doll cutout book with, with her dresses and everything else in it. And so I'm, I'm riding on the streetcar home, and Bruner is sitting next to me. And Bruner... <laughs> Bruner got a knockdown dollhouse made out of cardboard. You know, that you put together... <laughs> At least he could salvage something. He could pretend it was a garage. But what are you going to do with a Shirley Temple doll? What are you going to pretend she is? And it wouldn't do you any good anyway. It's only cardboard. And so I'm sitting in the streetcar, and I stuck it down in between the seat and the side of the wall. I didn't want to come home with a Shirley Temple doll. I, did, I just didn't, didn't want to bring it home. And, and I, I can remember the fantastic depression that, that I had over this thing. It's just a tremendous depression. And I went home, and I sort of moped around, and my mother says, What's eating you? Nothing. Well, didn't you go downtown with Bruner today? Did you have a good time? Yeah. Well, what's eating you? Nothing. Two weeks later, I had compiled another quarter. What do you think I did with it? That's right. I am down at the dime store, standing next to the grab bag counter again. Do you think that I bought a big little book that I wanted? A Buck Roger book? Nope. Did I buy a model airplane? A model of a spad? Nope. What do you think I came home with that time? <laughs> Are you interested in hearing? Hmm? Well, I'll tell you what I bought. I put down my quarter. I'm standing there, and I said, I'm going to pick something small this time. Something small because I understand that good things come in small packages. We are so full of these trite aphorisms. So I give her my quarter. I'm looking through this, this messes, and I pick out a small package. And I open it up when I get outside, and what do you think? It turns out to be a string of beads. A string of red beads. All of my life, I have been standing next to grab bags. All of my life, I have been reaching in and hoping that it's going to work out. And if it hasn't worked out for you, friends, we would like to recommend that you fly the coop via Lufthansa. Lufthansa Airlines. They'll get you out of it. They'll take you direct to Central Europe, directly to Frankfurt. And from there, you can go to, you can go to Munich. And from there, it's a short train ride to Vienna. And from Vienna, it's a short... A short hop to Istanbul, and from there, no one, no one will ever catch you. From there on in, you're in. I mean, you're in. Wouldn't you like to be riding the Orient Express tonight, really? Bound for Damascus. And from then, from that point, from Damascus points east? Well, you can do it via Lufthansa. I'd say consult your travel agent and ask him about Lufthansa's rates. Special fly-the-coop rates are available for one-way ticket purchasers. Guys who want to really make it. Lufthansa. The German airlines, where they really put it on. Luft... There's a thing I wanted to do here. Just hold on. All right. Better not do it. Better not do it, because, you know, uh, I'm going to do it. George, I'm going to do it. I wish I had some cheap American mood music to play behind me. You know, I have a feeling about this mood music. I think that there are s symptoms in the air, really, of fantastic decadence going on around us, so great that we can't, even, we can't even begin to understand it all. 
I mean, how is a marshmallow going to understand marshmallows? It just isn't, it's, it isn't possible. And you go up and down the radio dial, you listen to what's going on. Because this really is, you know, a voice of America. As much as you like to say, oh, the radio, or oh, the television. Oh, no. No, no, it comes out of us. And this endless, endless, endless series of of terrible things that, that we are constantly listening to and watching and being part of, this great, great escapist movement that is so much part of the 20th century. You know, I have a feeling that in a in a hundred years, this uh, period that we're living through right now is going to be known as the period of the great escape. And, of course, the sad truth of it is that there is no escaping at all, ever. There never has been, never will be. That uh, the barbarians, when they are at the gates, they are at the gates, <laughs> you know? And there's no turning back. And the sound of the Montevani albums rises and rises and rises. You know, there's an interesting, a lot of interesting things are happening in our time. That uh, I, I wonder whether many sociologists are really putting them down. You know, really, really making records of them. For example, look, now I'll give you one brief example. Have you looked in many of the record shop windows lately in the Times Square area? Well, you know what they're selling right openly now these days? In, the, in record shop windows, they're, they're selling what used to be known as party records openly now. I mean openly. I mean, they're right out there along with the, uh, with the Elvis Presley discs, uh, the Fabian discs, and the Kooky discs, and all the other great cultural achievements of our time. They're being sold out there on the same, just on the same basis, just hanging there in the window. I mean, these are real party records. And I'm, I'm, the other day I'm walking along 6th Avenue, and you know there's a lot of little gift shops and places where they sell, uh, not, not 6th Avenue, no, this happened to be 7th Avenue, as a matter of fact. And it's up in the 50s there. I'm walking along, and they have all these little stationery shops, you know, where they sell greeting cards and one thing and another. And I'm looking in the window at some of the greeting cards. And this is pure, unadulterated, completely not even double entendre pornography, but real pornography. And it's right there in the window, along with Valentine cards, little cards with lace and hearts and Christmas cards and all the other things that we pretend that we believe in. And right there in the middle of it is this pornography. I mean, real pornography, the most, the most, uh, the most low base sort of pornography, the really bad taste, not even cleverly done pornography, you know, but just completely out and blatant and miserable pornography and there it is right there in the middle of, of the of the uh, gift counter and, and and people are buying and selling it on a very very accepted level just uh, the way you'd buy uh, a card for valentine's or christmas in fact most of them are involved in valentine i might point out but this is an interesting thing and i am certainly not victorian or anything like this i'm merely saying that there is a great decline of public morality that's going on that bears little or no ship with the radio and the television industry, which everybody's making a lot of talk about, you know. I think if there's anything that's wrong with radio and television, it's a little too prissy. It's a little too namby-pamby and uh, will, not, will not admit to the facts of life that exist. But my golly, you know, you, you look around and the, the intriguing thing is that nobody seems to be saying anything about this. H has it been... Uh, how long has it been since you've listened to the top 30? 
Well, you sit down and listen to some of these topics. And this is, by the way, listened to mostly by teenagers. This is all teenage stuff, most of it. And for that reason, most people don't even notice it. They just say, oh, it's a kid record. And they walk away. Do you know that most of these teenage records that are being played today would have been called borderline party records four or five, maybe ten years ago? That a lot of this stuff is also unadulterated pornography and means only one thing when you listen to it. That the... This kid is singing to another kid, and, and he's singing about only one thing, and you know what it is. <laughs> and it's uh, 14, 15-year-old kids. And this is a fascinating thing that's happening to us. And, and it's happening on all levels, on all fronts, everywhere you look. It's, it's, beginning, to, it's beginning to show. And the intriguing, uh, the intriguing aspect of it, of course, is that it has also uh, permeated most of our most of our mass mediums. Uh, I, I saw a play here a couple of weeks ago, which shall go unnamed, uh, that was not, in any sense, uh, it was not an obscene play. It had nothing to do with obscenity. It had nothing to do with, with uh, pornography, per se. But it was making something that was illicit and totally, I might say, dishonest appear beautiful. And on the basis of the beauty involved, it excused the transgression of a major law. This is pretty serious stuff, you know, when you're dealing with this. And, and I'm, I'm watching all these various things that are going on, and I'm thinking, by George, you know, old Nero must be putting in another string somewhere, getting ready to play maybe the coda. He's finally approaching the end of his song. And all the while, as you go back and forth on the dial, you begin to see that, that there is a kind of faceless anonymity to so much of it. You hardly... Uh, well, here is an example. There's a major radio station here in town that has recently made a rule that there will be no talk other than straight news on their station of more than 20 seconds in duration. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. We are becoming so much afraid of hearing the human voice that we've got to constantly disappear into this music. And now what they have done is that even when they give the weather forecast and the news and so on, they have to put music behind it. The weather forecast has music going behind it. Somehow it becomes a show. Old Hurricane Effie has become part of the great big hit parade, you know, <laughs> the whole business. And, and, and this is a real, to me, a genuinely fascinating phenomenon, all of this stuff, to watch this go on. I'm listening to one radio station the other day, and all they do on this radio station is give their call letters, play a record, read an announcement, give their call letters, play a record, read an announcement, give the time, give their call letters, give the temperature, read an announcement, play a record. Their entire programming consists of giving their name. And they give their name about 40 different ways. They sing it, they play it on drums, they send it out on Morse code, they, they, they have a chorus dance to it, you know the sort of thing? It's, it's, it's what's called dynamic radio now. It would be as if every 30 seconds I would say, this is W-O-R, W-O-R, yes, to your front station, W-O-R, W-O-R, boop, 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 W-O-R, weather now, boop, 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 39 degrees, W-O-R time, boop, 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 10 minutes after 12, and now here's the W-O-R hit tune of the week. It's W-O-R, sung by Eddie W-O-R. ba 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 And it goes on like this, you know. On and on and on and on. And that's all they ever say, all day long. It's as though mankind has nothing to say in our time. You know, radio uh, is 
actually one of the and the prime method of communication in the world today, whether or not you as an American know it. Do you know that all of China, one of the great weapons in China today, unfortunately, is the radio? That for the first time in all history, all of China is being united by radio. That everywhere in China, people listen to the radio, and they are all learning one language. This is the first time this has ever happened. I mean, it's being done by radio. That, that 97% of the people in Russia do not have television. They only listen to the radio. That almost all of Europe is constantly involved in listening to the radio. And wherever you go, all over the world, you hear people saying things on the radio. A lot of the things they say are bad. A lot of the things they say are good, depending on your viewpoint. But they're saying things. You listen to the BBC, they're saying things on the radio. They really are, you know. You listen to Radio Luxembourg, you find they're saying things. You know, the best radio programming I've heard in many years was, was when I was in Munich. I was in Munich here a year or so ago, and I was listening to a portable radio I brought with me because I'm fascinated by what people are saying on the radio. All of it, This is where you really hear the voices of these nations, you know, not on television, but, but you hear the voices of all the nations going on all over the bands. That's why shortwave radio listening is so exciting. You know that some of the best radio programming I have ever heard was on the Voice of America coming out of radio out of Munich, being broadcast to all of Europe. This were radio programs all produced by America, by American radio performers and so on, and it was being broadcast to Europe, and it was not even recognizable as American radio. You really listen to fantastic programs, wonderful shows. And if there was a radio station in America that was doing this kind of stuff, people would listen to the radio. You couldn't get it anywhere else, you know. There it was. It was really good radio. And I'm not talking about for a minority. It was good radio because most of the people in Europe listen to the American radio stations over there, you know. There are about three big radio stations that are run mostly by Americans. And they are really listened to. But here, when you're back in the States, you, you tune across the dial and all you hear... All you hear back and forth across the dial is music. And I don't care what kind of music you're talking about. I think a, a, a station that plays nothing but classical music is as bad as one that plays nothing but, but pop music. It's the same thing. It's just a record, you know. And you can say one is better than the other, but it still is escaping from that human voice, no matter how you cut it. That, that the human voice seems to be anathema to American radio, and certainly television. You don't hear any commentators of note on television. I mean, one escapist program after the other. And every Sunday afternoon, there's a, a collection of panel programs where guys sit around and, and uh, mediate and uh, kind of smooth each other's ruffled feathers. And that's about the end of it. But uh, there's, there's, really, there's really not much to listen to. There's so much noise going on and so many lights and sounds and flashes and signs going up in front of us, but very little to and very little to hear. Go back and forth, back and forth. You hear nothing but the, the music going on and on and on. And, and I, I think this is an interesting sociological phenomenon. I'm not certainly lashing out at the radio people or the television people because this is what, unfortunately, America wants these days. And you're going to say, oh, no, we don't have any choice. But you do, you know, that this is, this is a development of our, of our time. It just is. And uh, it's a fascinating thing that I do feel that, uh, that today that we have advanced so much technically 
that we no longer have any real contact with one another. It's fascinating. They, they've worked in the opposite, you know? Instead of bringing us closer together, I think all of this technical communications equipment has taken us further apart uh, as individuals. And I, I, I'll never forget the, the sight of this little short, fat man I saw a couple of days ago walking along 47th Street with a, uh, with a radio stuck in his breast pocket. Yeah, he has this little vest pocket radio, and he's got it plugged into his ear. And he's walking along down the street, and, and he has this thing turned all the way up, and you know how these little earphones rattle. And I could hear this rock and roll tune. It must have been rocking through his head at about 900 dBs. This was a grown-up man. And his wife is walking alongside of him, absolutely stone-faced and silent. They had nothing to say to each other. Just the way two people sitting in front of a television set watching Paladin have nothing to say to one another. And the endless roar of the Elvises and the Kookies and the Fabians go on and on and on. And once in a while, the announcer breaks in and says, W.O.R. time, 7.15, W.O.R. temperature, 39. And now here is the W.O.R. hit. I'm using our call letters because, thank heavens, we're not one of those, one of those people caught into it. Uh, it's, uh, we don't do this. And I'm not taking kicks at other people because probably we will be led to do it ourselves. <laughs> before long. Who knows? While we're on the subject of doing it, uh, we have with us the electronic workshop. If you would like to repair some of that equipment that keeps you, uh, keeps you safely away from conversation, we would like to point out that the electronic workshop at 26 West 8th Street in the village is really one of the finest high-fidelity organizations that I've ever had any dealings with. And I would like to point out that I have had some background in hi-fi. I used to be the a jazz writer and critic for one of the hi-fi magazines as long ago as, oh, 1954. I was involved in the formation and the promotion of the first audio show that was held in Philadelphia back in 1951. I did, uh, we can go on and on. Uh, one thing I did do, I did the first program in recorded radio history that was based entirely on disseminating and giving out high-fidelity information back in the days when hi-fi was a term that was used only by engineers. You know, there was such a day when hi It's hard to believe now, isn't it? When they have so subverted the term high-fidelity that even little five-inch radios made in Japan that are purchased for $12.95 are called hi-fi. It's funny. But uh, if you want to know about an honest high-fidelity organization, really an honest hi-fi shop that is based purely on the premise that they are going to be in business for a long time and that customers come back, you will find them at 26 West 8th Street. It's the electronic workshop. And believe me, with the, with the ownership of hi-fi at such a high level as it is today, to know about an honest place where you can get really a, a good deal on equipment, but more than that, they stand behind it themselves. Not just this little trick guarantee comes in the package. It says, send it back if the materials are defective within one year. These people will install equipment for you if you buy a hi-fi system, and they will give you their personal guarantee that it will continue to work. And that's good to know. They have an excellent service department. You know, most of these hi-fi places here in town don't even have service departments. If you think I'm kidding, try to take it back to some of these big places. <laughs> 
and tell them you want to pick it up Friday. Uh, this is the Electronic Workshop at 26 West 8th Street, and if you have any hi-fi problems that you'd like to investigate, if you have any any uh, service problems or you'd like to trade in any equipment, they do trade-ins there, by the way. Many of them don't do that. Uh, you will find them at 26 West 8th Street, and their number is Gramercy 30140. It's a good number to call. It's Gramercy 30140. And while we're on the subject of people who are picking up the tab, we have also with us the paper book gallery, which is also down in the village. And, and I would like to say that they still have some copies left of the new catalog, which they have recently turned out. Now, uh, paper books are a major thing in our time. And I think one of the really plus things that has come along in the past 10 or 12 years. And the paper book gallery is one of the organizations largely responsible for the great success of quality paper books in the United States. They, they really are a big swinging group, and if you're going to make the village scene this week, I would suggest you visit Sheridan Square if you're going to be down in one of the off-Broadway theaters and you'd like to spend an hour or two in something that really has a strange atmosphere, a world all of its own. Try the paper book gallery. They're on Sheridan Square at 10th Street, just where 7th Avenue South and 10th Street converge, right across Nixon, the village. And it's the paper book gallery. You see it's downstairs, kind of a downstairs corner place. And they have a great big uh, display sign up above them, so you can't miss them. And there's another paper book gallery over on 3rd Street, at uh, just back of the NYU campus on 3rd Street. This is the paper book gallery, and they have a few copies of this, this excellent this excellent uh, catalog that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it briefly is this, that they have a 90-page catalog, which is uh, a catalog of all the quality paper books from all over the world that are carried by the paper book gallery, listed by subject, say art, uh, literature, and so on, down the line. And it's 90 pages. It costs them 16 cents just to have, just to have printed. And the mailing is around six or seven cents, and the handling is well over what you'll have to pay for it. They will send you a copy of this for a quarter. Just drop a quarter into an envelope and address it to Paper Book Gallery, Box 60, New York 12, New York. And you can buy anything you want from the Paper Book Gallery by mail, as well as by person. Just, just follow the sign, you see. Uh, the solar galleries... Or is it the solar room? Or is it the solar? Or is it the solar system? Or is it? You see, the th it, it all gets part of the same fruitcake. Uh, Harold Monolith here. We'll be back uh, tomorrow night at five minutes past nine. <laughs>